Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, experts in genetic counseling explain the future of gene editing using a tool called CRISPR. To be able to actually go into the genome and deliver a, an edited gene which is now corrected for its previous defect is truly a breakthrough. A hematologist discusses bleeding disorders in children. Easy bruising, uh, frequent nosebleeds, or frequent gum bleeding are probably the most common. Other kind of symptoms are recurrent joint bleeds or post-surgical bleeding. And a pulmonologist talks about pulmonary hypertension, a type of high blood pressure that affects arteries in the lungs. Pulmonary hypertension is high blood pressure in the blood vessels supplying blood into the lungs. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk with experts in genetic counseling about the future of gene editing using a tool called CRISPR that's been in the news. Then, we'll hear about bleeding disorders from a pediatric hematologist. But first, a pulmonologist discusses diagnosis and treatment of pulmonary hypertension. Today, we're learning about a condition called pulmonary hypertension or high blood pressure in the lungs with Dr. Barindra Saw. He's a pulmonologist and clinical assistant professor of medicine at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Saw. Thank you for having me, Amber. Now, you have a nice diagram for when you give lectures on this subject, so I want to describe for listeners of um, how the body's circulatory system works with the heart pumping blood through blood vessels into the lungs and then back into the heart and then out to the rest of the body before the blood makes its way back to the heart, right? Exactly, that's so right. So it's kind of yeah. like two separate... Two, two different, uh, two separate sides of the blood circulation. Right, right. So um, anyway, so when we talk about pulmonary hypertension, it's only about the part uh, in, in the, the lungs. lungs. Yep. All right. So let's start with a definition of pulmonary hypertension. How is it different from regular hypertension that we've all heard about? So pulmonary hypertension is uh, high blood pressure in the blood vessels supplying, you know, blood into the lungs. The regular hypertension is uh, high blood pressure in the blood vessels uh, throughout the body, like in arms uh, or um, in the legs. And so to measure, you know, blood pressure in the arms, you wrap a cuff around the arms and you can check the blood pressure. To diagnose pulmonary hypertension, you need different type of tests, which I will be discussing, you know, uh, going forward. So a person who has regular high blood pressure, which is, is what hypertension is, mm -hmm. are they susceptible to also having pulmonary hypertension? Or do you have to have one or the other or both? The patients uh, with pulmonary hypertension uh, does not necessarily have to have a regular hypertension. But the patients with hypertension, if their hypertension is not controlled for many years, that can lead to uh, dysfunction of the left heart, and that can lead to pulmonary hypertension, which I'll be describing okay. in more detail. So it really yeah. is two different Yeah, these are two different things. entities. So I was going to ask what causes it. You alluded to it. Is it damage to the left side of the heart that causes it? If somebody has a regular hypertension, and if that is not treated well over the course, that can lead to dysfunction of the left heart or left heart failure. That can lead to pulmonary hypertension because, you know, when you describe the circulation, right side of the heart pumps blood into the left heart. So if the left heart is not pumping well forward, that will cause backward pressure in the right heart, and that can increase the blood pressure in the lungs. Is there Are there other things that cause it? Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, the cause, you know, to talk about causes, uh, I will go over the classification of pulmonary hypertension. Pulmonary hypertension has been classified by World Health Organization in five groups, and that is based on what causes, you know, the mechanism of pulmonary hypertension. So group one is called pulmonary artery hypertension. You know, there's a difference, pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary artery hypertension. 
that itself explains then the pathology. The problem is in the pulmonary artery wall. And the other four groups are pulmonary hypertension, different way to cause high blood pressure. So group one is pulmonary artery hypertension, and there are many conditions which have been associated with group one. Group two is, uh, going back to group one, so group one is a stiffening of the pulmonary artery. You know, the pulmonary artery is a blood vessel, and the wall of that blood vessel is stiffened. That's the main pathology of group one. Group two is pulmonary hypertension due to left heart failure, which I explained to you before, when the left, if there is some problem with the left heart, which is not either relaxing well, or because of the, some other, like a heart attack, the heart become, you know, left heart becomes weak, not pumping blood forward, that can lead to backward flow in the, you know, that circuit can cause increased pressure in the lungs. That's called group two pulmonary hypertension due to left heart disease. Okay. Uh, then group three is pulmonary hypertension due to lung disease. Uh, that means if somebody has severe COPD. Uh, chronic obstructive chronic, pulmonary. Uh, yeah, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, or the fibrosis in the lung, or severe, very, very severe sleep apnea, which uh, causes low oxygen level in the blood. That leads to constriction of the blood vessel in the lungs, or sometimes that fibrosis of the lungs can cause narrowing of the pulmonary artery, and that can lead to, you know, uh, lead to high uh, blood pressure in the lungs. Group four is pulmonary hypertension due to uh, chronic blood clot. You know, that's self-explanatory. If somebody gets blood clot in the lungs, which is called pulmonary embolism, uh, some of the patients can, uh, the compl long-term complication of that, you know, uh, condition can lead to uh, that, um, that clot becomes fibrosed, and that can narrow the pulmonary blood vessel, and that can cause, um, you know, pulmonary hypertension. That's group four, and group five is, uh, you know, miscellaneous like sarcoidosis, um, patient with renal failure on dialysis. There are other many conditions which fall in group five. Uh, the reason, um, so that's the five classification, you know, five group of uh, pulmonary hypertension. Another reason to classify into uh, five group is all these groups is the treatment which I will talk you know there is a there is a certain type of drugs which are only indicated to treat group one or the different types okay well we're definitely going to get into that um, but let's talk about the symptoms how would a person know or begin to feel like they're they've got this so you know to diagnose pulmonary hypertension is a little bit difficult because the symptoms of pulmonary hypertension are uh, are uh, of same of common pulmonary problems or heart problems, like a patient with asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or you know other heart left heart condition, they all can have shortness of breath, palpitation, leg swelling, chest pain. All these symptoms are common with these conditions. So sometimes uh, it can take time. You know, generally there is two to three years delay uh, before pulmonary hypertension can get diagnosed uh, because of the you know these common symptoms shared by other illness. That makes sense if it's uh, because you would think maybe it's a heart problem and not realize. But eventually people would find their way to a specialist yep. such as yourself to have this sort of teased out. Exactly. Um, the risk factors for pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary artery hypertension, are they the same? No, they are different. As you know, I explained to you, before that, the way they have been classified, you know, uh, in five groups, the risk factor for group one, which is pulmonary artery hypertension, you know, which is kind of, you know, we focus more when we're treating it. Uh, the, the risk factor could be none. There is something called idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. Um, they, we do not find, you know, even after workup, we don't find any obvious cause. Other risk factors for pulmonary artery hypertension, that is group one, are, you know, autoimmune disorders like lupus-like illness, scleroderma, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, other risk factor could be use of if the patients have used uh, anorexic in appetite suppressing agents in the past, that can put patient, uh, that person to develop pulmonary artery hypertension. Other are like HIV infections, liver cirrhosis with portal hypertension, or somebody having congenital heart disease, those people are at risk of developing pulmonary artery hypertension. Okay. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Barindra Saw, a pulmonologist and assistant professor of medicine at Upstate, and our topic is pulmonary hypertension. So how is this diagnosed? I know you said 
it's typical for people maybe to go to different doctors or to their primary care doctor and not have this diagnosed for up to a few years because of the symptoms. But once you're suspecting that, what do you do to diagnose? So the first test to do when we suspect pulmonary hypertension, first test to do is echocardiogram. Echocardiogram is ultrasound of the heart. You look at, you know, the, we look at, we do the ultrasound to look at the heart and we, that can give uh, the measurement of pressure in the pulmonary artery. Okay. And, uh, you know, that's the first test to do. Once we do that test, and then we, you know, that does so evidence of pulmonary hypertension. Then we do so we do many tests to figure out, you know, which group, you know, group one to five, which group it falls in. And uh, once we decide, uh, you know, if it is in group one, uh, then we try to do a confirmatory test called right heart catheterization. And right heart catheterization is uh, inserting a catheter uh, which has a sensor at the tip, and that we insert through the groin or the uh, the arm and that goes into the pulmonary artery and that gives us the exact measurement of pulmonary artery uh, pressure and that's how you know we confirm the diagnosis of pulmonary artery hypertension. So once you have the diagnosis, what are the treatment options? Um, once we diagnose pulmonary artery, you know, pulmonary artery, so pulmonary artery hypertension and pulmonary, hypert- pulmonary hypertension. Um, once we diagnose pulmonary artery hypertension, there are medicines, pulmonary artery hypertension, a specific drugs to treat that is called vasodilators. And, uh, you know, it's like a regular, you know, the way we treat regular hypertension. You know, there are so many medications to relax the blood vessels and that de- decreases the pressure in the artery. The same way we have uh, uh, pulmonary artery hypertension, a specific drugs, those are called vasodilators, and those, you know, medications are prescribed to decrease pressure. Then uh, there's some we call supportive care, like if somebody is, you know, when patient has pulmonary, pulmonary artery hypertension or pulmonary hypertension, their oxygen level is low, so we prescribe them oxygen. Uh, pulmonary artery hypertension can also lead to right heart failure. If the right side of the heart is not pumping, they develop swelling in the legs, uh, and so we also prescribe diuretics that, you know, generally we call water pill. And um, uh, patients who has history of blood clot, or group four hypertension, we prescribe blood thinner to prevent, uh, you know, blood, further blood clot formation. Um, the um, so that's the group one. Group other group like group uh, two left heart failure, group three pulmonary hypertension due to lung disease. Uh, those medications are not indicated. Pulmonary artery, you know, hypertension specific drugs are not indicated. There's no role of those drugs. So treatment of those kind of pulmonary hypertension is just supportive, uh, like, you know, pro- prescribing oxygen. Uh, those kind of patients benefit from, you know, mostly from fluid and salt uh, management. They have to really pay uh, attention, you know, how much fluid they are drinking, how much salt they are, you know, uh, putting in the diet and all that. That, uh, uh, that needs very careful, you know, management. Is this a disease where early treatment makes a difference in survival? It is, you know, in group one pulmonary artery hypertension, especially uh, early diagnosis and more aggressive treatment up front, de- you know, increases the survival. There is no cure for pulmonary hypertension, but if we diagnose it early, and uh, if we treat them with proper, you know, drugs, uh, 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 that can lead to increased survival. And if someone goes untreated and has this condition, what? What do they die from? Is it do they, they develop a heart attack or they what? die of heart failure? You know, their okay. heart ultimately their heart will because the right side of the heart has to pump against high pressure. So ultimately, the right heart you know it stops pumping. They go into cardiac arrest. Well, let's talk w- about what life is like for someone who has the diagnosis and is being treated. Are they able to go about their daily activities, or d- are there certain restrictions? Um, once you know the patient develop pulmonary uh, hypertension, uh, they they go through many limitations. You know because they are short of breath, uh, they can feel dizzy, lightheaded, fatigue. You know so their day to day activities are decreased. You know sometimes they may have to lose job or maybe change the job. Uh, that's also they have to go frequent. You know uh, they have to go for frequent appointment. They need, you know, they need to visit physicians every uh, four, four weeks, six weeks, or three months in the beginning. 
when we start the treatment. So, uh, you know, they have time limitation. Also, the uh, specific, you know, pulmonary hypertension, specific drugs, they are very expensive. They can have, you know, financial stress. They can, you know, the co-payment for these medications are very high. So um, that can lead to financial stress. Uh, the psychosocial stress, you know, they need help. Um, they can, you know, they can go into depression. So they need a lot of support, psychosocial support too. And you mentioned their diet too. They may have to change. Oh, yeah. The, regarding or... the diet, you know, they have to make, uh, they have to pay attention to the diet. The, again, I said um, the fluid and salt management is very crucial. Uh, they, uh, generally, you know, they need to restrict the fluid uh, intake and the salt intake. And the one way to, uh, if they take, uh, if they eat a lot of salt, or, uh, if they drink a lot of fluid, they will develop fluid retention and that can make, you know, uh, if the right side have the heart in it pumping well, that can make it work. So the, um, you know, they really have to do the, you know, how much, uh, count how much uh, salt they are putting in, the, uh, how much salt they are eating every day or how much fluid they are drinking. And they also need to uh, measure their weight every day. That can give them the idea if they are, you know, building up fluid or not. If, like, mm-hmm. you know, the weight is going by one or two pounds every week, that means, you know, they're building up the fluid. So in that case, they have to cut, you know, they have to cut down on the salt and fluid intake. And also, sometimes they have to go up on the medicine, uh, the water pill we call diuretics, to, to get rid of that weight. It seems like it can be kind of a complicated disease to manage. It is very so. complicated, yep. Well, thank you for uh, talking about this with us. I appreciate it. My guest has been Dr. Barindra Saw, an assistant professor of medicine and a pulmonologist at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, how gene editing could affect you in the future. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Recently in the news headlines, we heard about doctors in the United States using a gene editing tool called CRISPR to treat a patient with sickle cell disease. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to help us understand what sounds like a promising advance are medical oncologist Dr. Gloria Morris, who specializes in cancer risk assessment and genetic testing for hereditary cancers, and genetics program coordinator Rachel Grosvenor. Welcome to you both. Thank you for being here. Thank you for Thank having you. us. CRISPR. What what is that? What does it stand for, and and what is it? CRISPR is essentially a new technology, which is a new powerful tool for editing genomes, and it is an acronym uh, defined as clusters of regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. So C-R-I-S-P-R. Stands for, yes, for that uh, definition, molecular definition of well, when when we say it's a tool, is it a is it an object or is it a technique? It's a, exactly it's a technique, a technique okay. which is a sequence of nucleotides in DNA attached to an enzyme which can cut DNA in double stranded areas, double stranded uh, making double stranded breaks, and the whole complex called CRISPR-Cas9 is a, uh, a conglomeration of the CRISPR sequence plus the enzyme which will cut DNA strands, uh, double-strand uh, DNA. And basically, as a tool, it is uh, able to be programmed or developed uh, with molecular techniques that really have stemmed in this generation from our previous knowledge generations ago of recombinant DNA technology. That's the era that I did my own molecular training. However, the advances in the field have been incredible in order to make 
the ability to edit DNA a lot more specific. So it sounds like the things that you're describing are uh, molecular biologists would be doing these things. It's not like my doctor is working on this at this point. So we're sort of talking about things that are to come in the future. Exactly. In, okay. in clinical practice today, we know that we are certainly able to personalize treatments based on gene alterations and targets that uh, certain drugs have been able to target so that treatment can be a lot more specific and hopefully with less toxicity. However, to be able to actually go into the genome and deliver a, an edited gene, which is now corrected for its previous defect, is truly uh, a breakthrough that hopefully one day will be able to be uh, co almost commonplace in humans if uh, many aspects can be uh, further characterized first. Now, the headlines um, that we read recently dealt with sickle cell disease. So yes. were, are, are we experimenting with fixing or repairing a gene that causes sickle cell, Rachel? Um, well, for the sickle cell example, um, the woman in this article that we were reading had been suffering with debilitating pain from sickle cell her whole life. She volunteered for this early international clinical trial at the prestigious Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville. And Sarah Cannon has always been at the forefront of cancer clinical trials and establishing national treatment guidelines. In this trial, they're using CRISPR to treat sickle cell disease by harvesting bone marrow stem cells from the patient's peripheral blood. Then they use CRISPR to edit the gene in order to actually induce those stem cells to produce fetal hemoglobin which is something we normally stop producing shortly after birth. Huh. The hope is this fetal hemoglobin will be able to compensate for the defective sickle cell hemoglobin and enable the patient to live a somewhat normal life. The patient does then have to go through a conditioning regimen of chemotherapy to wipe out their own defective bone marrow, and then they receive the infusion of the edited stem cell progenitor bone marrow cells. Interesting. So where um, do you know where things are with that particular trial? I believe it was just very recently that okay. she actually went through the process. So we really don't know if it's worked And yet. we don't know if it will have long-term effects, if the body, how the body will react to it. So it's very early trials still, and it may take many months before we see any effects and we know how well it works. Well, that's interesting, though, to take somebody's, um, their own blood and tinker with it um, and then give it back to them would that be the type of thing that this woman would then, if she went on and had children, this protection would be passed on to the children as well or not? Unfortunately, at this level, this isn't something she would have the ability to pass on. Okay. And it would be something that would be an individualized treatment for each person. Interesting. Um, but it's a good first step towards correcting a genetic disease. Have you had um, patients asking about that or CRISPR technique in general, Dr. Morris? I have simply because in the literature as well as newscasts, uh, this new technology, even when it is introduced and even when there are news stories of this being used for the first time at, at different institutions or in different research capacities, the knowledge uh, is disseminated that this is an entity that could be possible. And I have had uh, patients ask this in both the clinic and in support group settings where I have discussed hereditary gene mutations that can cause different cancers. Uh, what's interesting is that, well, two things. People want hope, and we want to give them as much hope as possible for all ways to try to combat disease, target uh, how to treat disease. But what also is interesting is that there are so many different gene mutations that we're learning about that hopefully one day there can be at least targeted therapy, if not uh, uh, editing uh, gene mutations that can put people at a higher risk of cancer. 
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with medical oncologist Dr. Gloria Morris and genetics program coordinator Rachel Grosvenor, both from the Upstate Cancer Center. We're talking about CRISPR, um, a new, t- relatively new technique for gene editing. Um, and I want, we've talked about sickle cell disease, but there's some other diseases that people are holding out a lot of hope for. Um, cancer, I guess, namely. Do you see whether in the future CRISPR might be the cure for cancer? That's a wonderful question. In terms of a cure, it's so broad and we learn that there are so many specific gene mutations that it is, uh, in anyone's view, going to take an armamentarium toward multiple targets that might be able to attain that goal. And what's interesting about the uh, sickle cell article is that it also alluded to Uh, other forms of anemia that could be targeted. And as we Mm. read about a lot of the other uh, articles that are referenced in that article, there are uh, certainly some, uh, at least phase one, even dose-finding clinical trials where they don't really know the toxicity in humans yet. But um, a lot of the commentary from these trials and descriptions suggests that it's a lot easier to uh, integrate the technology right now into hematologic malignancies where there are blood cancers and where there are the ability to harvest immune cells from the peripheral blood as opposed to trying to treat solid organ cancers so far at this time. Um, But one of the ways that this uh, certainly can be done is to be able to harvest from the peripheral blood uh, bone marrow clones or immune clones that can be stimulated to enter the peripheral blood and to extract those, try to do gene editing uh, in terms of knocking out a uh, target, a gene target, and infuse those back into the patient, just as Rachel was describing from this, from this uh, particular article. Well, let's talk about the risks. Um, What are the risks of gene editing using CRISPR? It's interesting because many of the risks we want to think about in terms of, first of all, toxicity to the human. Anytime that there is immune therapy, some of the after effects of any immune therapy certainly should be monitored as oncologists and clinicians do. Uh, any type of um, autoimmune mechanism that might be uh, aggravated in, uh, in humans and any type of uh, dermatitis, gastroenteritis, um, all kinds of other inflammatory reactions that, that could occur. The other potential pitfalls, though, from what we're understanding actually have to do with even the development of the tools. Even within the cells themselves trying to edit genes and then have an expansion of cell lines take, if you will, is a challenge. And so even getting to that step of introducing a CRISPR-edited infusion to a patient takes a while and takes a lot of uh, not only persistence in the laboratory, but a lot of troubleshooting in terms of trying to get clones to grow, trying to find the best technique in order to introduce that edited sequence into cells. Uh, Rachel came across an excellent molecular article, which also uh, shows us that when we test patients in our clinic for p53 mutations that could put people at a predisposition for cancer for example we also now know that that p53 or dna damage response can be activated even when edited dna dna is introduced into an experimental cell Hmm. and so there's been a lot of uh interesting articles just trying to understand what the molecular mechanisms are, are that are activated within cells to try to protect themselves from even invasion from foreign DNA. 
And so there's a lot of troubleshooting that is, is still in uh, process in the, in the laboratories just to try to develop what is going to eventually be introduced into a human for treatment. So as I understand it right now, these techniques are not available to a person coming in to see a doctor. What do you say to patients who ask you about them, though, that, that want to try them now, that are willing to um, be, you know, be a guinea pig, so to speak? First, we always uh, applaud patients for their willingness to participate in such trials. They're truly the heroes that are uh, interested in pushing the field forward. Certainly, the article that Rachel had summarized um, really exhibits, along with the NPR radio transcript, uh, of you know the more personal uh, account of a person who's been through multiple, multiple rounds of different modalities of treatment and is willing to uh, try and experiment. What we usually do in the clinic if someone is very interested in participating in a clinical trial is I certainly work with our oncologists to see what is available. We know that CRISPR technology for the development uh, at our university is in development and is uh, in laboratory research. We also go to clinical trials websites from the National Cancer Institute, clinicaltrials.gov, to see what clinical trials are available nationally. And we want to make sure it is nationally, even though a lot of this technology is being developed and clinical trials are being done overseas. But we know that we have a lot more institutional review uh, for the ethics before introducing to humans in the United States, a lot of good regulation that we need to have uh, ethically before allowing clinical trials to take place. And we do look for those institutions and academic institutions across the United States that might have this type of therapy. Um, there are bone marrow transplant facilities that are looking at this therapy, for example, that are uh, accessible by going on the National Cancer Institute website as well. So you can help people because the technology, it's out there and you can help them maybe find it if, if there's a trial that applies to their diagnosis. Yes, so yes. That's good to know. Well, thank you so much for talking about this upcoming promising technology. My guests have been medical oncologist Dr. Gloria Morris, who specializes in cancer risk assessment and genetic testing for hereditary cancers, and genetics program coordinator Rachel Grosvenor, both from the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, understanding bleeding disorders. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When you get cut and bleed, your body normally would form a blood clot to stop the bleeding. To form blood clots, you need cells called platelets and proteins known as clotting factors. People with bleeding disorders either don't have enough platelets or clotting factors or they don't work correctly. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to tell us more about bleeding disorders is Dr. Andrea Dvorak. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at Upstate and the director of the Pediatric Bleeding Disorders Clinic. Thank you for being here, Dr. Dvorak. Thank you. Now, we'll get into the different types and causes of bleeding disorders, but first, can you tell us how common they are? So, honestly, we don't completely know. Um, we are finding more and more of them um, as we look for them, um, but um, they can be as common as about one in every um, 100,000, one in every 1,000, depending on what numbers you're looking at. 
Is there a formal definition of what a bleeding disorder is? Um, again, it's not. There are labs that suggest you have a bleeding disorder, and there are certain diagnoses that have very clear criteria. Um, but then there's actually an entire group of patients who seem to bleed easily that may not actually have a formal diagnosis. Interesting. Well, how does a parent, because you deal with pediatric patients, children, how does a parent typically learn that their child has a bleeding disorder? So typically what happens is they go to their general practitioner, whether it be a family practice or a pediatrician, um, and they, if they have either frequent bruising, frequent nosebleeds, um, some form of frequent type of bleeding symptom, um, their pediatrician will refer to them to us. Um, the other population we see is um, for patients who are either are getting ready to have surgery and have screening tests done, um, and then they're picked up on those screening tests and they're referred to us. Okay. And then are there some people that would make it to the adulthood without knowing that they've got? Definitely. Okay. So, so. You, don't, you don't hear about all of them, but... No. All right. Well, you mentioned um, bruising easily mm-hmm. and frequent bleeding. Um, are those the most common signs and symptoms or are there other things? So it all depends on uh, the diagnosis, uh, the specific diagnosis that the patient has. Um, but yes, easy bruising, uh, frequent nosebleeds or frequent um, like gum bleeding are probably the most common. Um, other kind of symptoms are um, joint recurrent joint bleeds or um, post-surgical bleeding would okay. be the other common one. And how worried should a parent be if they notice that they've got a toddler who's bruising Easily. Honestly, most toddlers who are bruising easily are do not have a bleeding disorder. Um, toddlers, because they're learning to walk and learning to move around, they bump into things. It's very common for them to get bruises in abnormal places. Um, so it's more we look at the whole picture um, and not just the, okay, yeah, you get bruises easier. Okay. So maybe it's something to mention at a checkup, but it's not an urgent phone call Exactly. Or Gotcha. Now, why are bleeding disorders um, dangerous? Because depending on the degree of the disorder itself, um, some patients can actually have spontaneous bleeds, so bleeds that don't require trauma. Or in other situations um, with trauma, if it's head trauma or abdominal trauma, they can have a bleed that can actually cause other complications and be life-threatening. Okay. So it does have to be known about and treated. It is definitely something that um, is better to be known about. So let's talk about the different types of bleeding disorders and how they're different. So in pediatrics, we vary a little bit from the adults um, because in the adults, there are more of what we call the acquired bleeding disorders. In pediatrics, they tend to be more um, inheritable bleeding disorders. Um, And so those types are, as if we look at how the blood clots, um, we have 13 different uh, clotting factors that have to come together in the right order in order to form the blood clot. And so if you have a low level, level of any one of those clotting factors, you have you can have a bleeding disorder. So the most common of those is called hemophilia. Okay. And that's the one that kind of everybody has heard about. Um, and that's either factor eight deficiency or factor nine deficiency. Um, but technically, you can have a deficiency of any of the 13 factors, um, though the rest of them are, tend to be a lot rarer. The other type that we see more, even more commonly is von Willebrand's um, disease. And von Willebrand's is actually a protein that our body produces that helps deliver clotting factors to the clot. And so if you don't have the right uh, amount or if you don't have access to the von Willebrand's uh, factor in the body, then you are going to bleed um, easier than someone who does has normal levels. So, and von Willebrand's is by far the most common type that we see. It's estimated to be in about uh, 1% of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, though, again, a lot of these patients will go undiagnosed because their symptoms are very mild. Um, and so they're just never brought to light. Okay. Well, you said that these are inherited. Mm-hmm. So um, does that mean the parent also has so in a lot of situations yes if we go backwards we the family member some family members already know they have these disorders um and so the 
children are picked up just because of the family history. Um, but quite often we may diagnose the child and then listening to the, as we gather our history about the parent as well. Oh yeah, they have similar symptoms. They also have bleeding symptoms and we have actually gone back and diagnosed the parent after the fact. So they didn't know they had so, it before. Exactly. Wow. So, and then there's also anywhere up to a quarter of patients, maybe new mutations. And so it may not be that a parent actually has the um, diagnosis and we may be making the first diagnosis in that child. So these are genetic mm -hmm. in origins. There's not something that it causes. Not in the most common. There are occasionally there are medications that can interfere. There are some other things, but for the most common ones that we see in pediatrics, they're all genetic um, and they're related to the specific chromosomes. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Andrea Dvorak. She's an associate professor of pediatrics and the director of the Pediatric Bleeding Disorders Clinic at Upstate. And before we go into bleeding disorders more, can I ask your advice for stopping a nosebleed? <laughs> yes. Because that's something that a lot of people will face. Yes, definitely. And it's something that just because you get a nosebleed does not mean you have a bleeding disorder. Okay. So to make that point very clear. Um, but the, our advice for stopping a nosebleed, the first thing is that you want to pinch the nose um, right below the bridge of the nose. Um, and that you actually want to lean forward. Um, when we were younger, we were always taught to lean backwards. But then you end up swallowing the blood and it doesn't stop bleeding. So instead, if you lean forward, it actually helps the clot to form in the nose um, and prevent the ongoing bleeding. The next thing is you really have to pinch the nose for quite some time. Um, for patients without bleeding complications, we recommend anywhere from five to 10 minutes. And you really should so be watching be a, a clock. Time. Yes, yeah. you should be watching a clock, watching a watch, because it's much longer than you really feel like it should be. Um, for pa my patients who actually have bleeding disorders, we recommend up to 15 to 20 minutes to hold the nose. So wow. it can be significant. Um, other tricks that you can use, um, a cool cloth on the back of the neck will actually help um, clot the nose and um, there are other if you have recurrent problems with nosebleeds keeping the nose moist especially um, during the winters when you're inside with the dry heat um, so using like a nasal saline or something to moisten the nose is the best technique okay well good good advice well in terms of getting back to bleeding or disorders um, are these things that children outgrow um very Rarely do they outgrow it. Um, occasionally we know specifically with von Willebrand's disease that because of the way the testing is done, um, sometimes the levels will actually change as the patient grows up. Um, but outside of that, someone who truly has a bleeding disorder is not going to outgrow it. Well, what sorts of treatments? What do you do for children that have these different disorders? So it's very diagnosis specific. Um, for the most common, so von Willebrand's and for hemophilia, we actually have recombinant factor products that we can give them. So we can replace the products that they're missing. Um, and so when we do that, we actually make these children have normal levels. And so the, they are cleared to do all of their activities and really interact with everyone. There's also other medications that we can use to help with specific type of bleeding with mucosal bleeding or nose bleeding. Um, and finally, we do a lot of just symptomatic care. Uh, we treat, uh, teach a lot about, as we were talking about with the nosebleeds, about symptomatic control, um, but also about prevention, about being mindful, using a helmet when you ride your bike, which everyone should, um, but it's even more important in my patients with bleeding disorders. Um, but, and doing, making sure that if they're going to do an activity that they're at risk for, that they really um, do it as safe as possible. So are there restrictions for kids? For some patients. We really try hard to not restrict the patients. Um, unfortunately, there are some of the bleeding disorders that I can't give preventative medicine to, and we can only treat after the fact when they have a bleed. And for unfortunately, for that small population, we really do have to restrict them. We don't allow them to play a lot of contact sports. Um, we have to be more mindful of it. Um, but for the, more, the larger group of the patients who either have very mild disorders or have... Um, um, hemophilia, where we can actually provide them with factor prior to um, activities, we allow them to play sports. Um, I have a child with severe hemophilia who plays football, um, and he does it safely. Um, and that's the key is working with the family to make sure that it's done in a safe uh, fashion. Neat.
Well, if a person is referred to you because their primary care doctor suspects they may have a bleeding disorder, can you walk us through what that first appointment is like? So typically it's going to um, be either with myself or there's seven other uh, pediatric physicians in our office. Um, So it'll be with one of the eight of us. We sit down, we take a good history, and the history is actually the most important part. So not only the child's history of bleeding, but also the family history of bleeding. So that helps us to determine really what is the likelihood of someone having a bleeding disorder. Um, And then we look at if any labs have been completed, because sometimes they come in with labs already done, or if they have not. Um, And that helps us to kind of guide. Almost always that first visit will be associated with a blood draw um, so that we can do the evaluation to see if there's an underlying bleeding history. And then if all of the testing is negative and the history doesn't, um, is not super consistent with a bleeding disorder, then we send them back to their pediatrician's office. If we actually diagnose a bleeding disorder, then those patients actually get, um, referred into the actual bleeding clinic so that, um, we do teaching visits with them and then we see them annually after that. Are you able to tell in that first visit? Can you diagnose? I mean, is the blood work quick, quick enough to, to know right so, away? So um, most of the blood work we will have back within a few days. So our lab here is wonderful, and actually most a lot of the information we can have back within 24 hours. Um, a couple of the tests take a little bit longer. Occasionally the patients have to come back for additional testing. Um, but typically um, for most patients within a week, we can give them um, tell them whether or not they actually have a bleeding disorder or not. Are these uh, ever emergency referrals where they're admitted to the hospital quickly? Yes, Um, if it is a patient who is bleeding. Um, So especially in the post-surgical bleeding setting is the more common. Occasionally if a a trauma-induced bleeding where they may not, nobody's previously diagnosed the child as having a problem, they come in with the bleeding symptoms and then we make the diagnosis after the fact. Um, But definitely, we don't see um, emergent bleeding very often, um, but it's definitely something that we watch for very carefully. So the majority are um, chronic, it sounds like, chronic conditions. Um, Are they appointments they have to make every year, every six months, every three months? What It, again, completely depends on the diagnosis, but for the most part, for a kid who has been diagnosed, the teaching has been completed, and the family has an understanding, we see the kids on an annual basis so that we're touching base if they need their wisdom teeth removed, if they need other procedures done so that we're already Mm -hmm. involved with all of those situations, helping to make sure that school isn't having, they're not having any problems with school and either restrictions being put on them or not being put on them, either way. Um, And then... um, Um, we'll see them as needed if they do need a procedure, if they have a bleed and that type of situation. It sounds like it would be a scary diagnosis to receive. How do you put a child and, and a parent at ease? I think the biggest thing is the fact that we are, our entire clinic is very well educated in this. And so being able to really give them the information um, and then really supporting them and helping them understand that, yes, they have this diagnosis, but there's a lot of things that we can do to normalize the life for the child. That though this is something that won't go away, it's something that our major goal is to that it's not going to run the child's life. Um, and then we actually, one of my, our, um, my parents actually started up a parents group for our kids with chronic bleeding disorders. And so for parents that are interested in that, I refer them um, to that group. And that's been very helpful as well. So the child continues to see you regularly mm-hmm. through childhood. Um, what happens once they're an adult? So it again depends on the diagnosis, but most of the time we will see a child until they're 21, 22, usually around the age that they're graduating from college um, because a lot of times at that point they're moving on to someplace uh, else and then we'll transition them to an adult hematologist. If they're going to stay local, we transition them right into our adult hematology program here and we are working on a transitioning program with their group as well. So. Very good. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information with us. Thank you very much. My guest has been Dr. Andrea Dvorak. She's director of the Pediatric Bleeding Disorders Clinic at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, 
Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Claudia M. Redder teaches at California State University at Channel Islands. Her poem, Mapping the Body, explores how one art form may help a patient post-stroke recover a former art form. Mapping the Body. Remembering can't be forced, but the art teacher says painting may nudge language and thought. I paint smudges, imagine them as tufts of feathers, because at any time a word tuft may drift below my line of vision. My access to language was once away to and through the world's daily fusses. Now language itself is the conundrum, a word on the tip of the tongue I am searching for. Like time-lapse photography, the space between words elongates. The word I sought, I no longer desire. The thought itself has slippered off. The quiet spills everywhere, hyphens, ellipsis. I am an erasure poem in progress. We relearn to swing our arms while walking. We keep our balance with head and eyes, ankles and feet, our proprioceptive sensors grounding ourselves in prepositions. Walk sideways through the tunnel, lean over the ball, rock heel to toe, eyes open, eyes closed, teaching me to focus and stop the world from tilting, holding back waves of self-pity since I was forced to step back from the life I was building. Meanwhile, the figures in my checkbook don't add up. Words and numbers do a two-step on the page. We reflect on the frustration of language that once mapped our presence in the world and now its absence. I muzzle emotion. The art teacher says, we disconnect feeling from thinking. We're told to connect the two through our work. The rhythms of walking might return, and with that, the rhythms of talking. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about bisectomies. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.